0: Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. And we are in Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And we will begin in verse 29 tonight. Matthew 24. Let's read verses 29 through 51. Matthew 24, 29 says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great uh, power and glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches have already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah." For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one left, and two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave, whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions." But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you help us, Lord, to understand And that, Lord, You might give to us a greater faith, Lord, a greater knowledge of Your will. Lord, help us to have great confidence, and, Lord, in belief in the second coming of Christ. Lord, knowing that uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, is coming again, and that when He does, He will deliver His church and He will judge His enemies. Lord, we pray that we would be found as those sensible and wise slaves who are found doing the will of their master when he returns. And that, Lord, we would not be like the wicked slave who is out living in immorality and, Lord, doing those things that are contrary to your will. So, Father, we pray that we would be faithful and wise, that we would be true to you, and that, Lord, though we do not know the exact moment that you will return, that we would always live in anticipation, Lord, always ready and hastening for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, Lord, teach us, uh, Lord, to persevere, to endure, to be faithful to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are in this chapter, chapter 24, where Jesus is teaching uh, on these two different topics. The first one being the destruction of Jerusalem uh, that he predicted uh, at the end of 23 and the beginning of 24, uh, which was the occasion for him uh, bringing up this discourse about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then the second coming. And then the second half of this is related to the second coming of Christ. And we remember that when the disciples ask this question, uh, they ask it as if these things are going to happen simultaneously, that the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of the temple, and the second coming, they're anticipating that these are all going to happen at the same time. But the reality is that there is a great period of time between the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming of Christ. From chapter uh, 24, verse 4 to verse 28, he's dealt with the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. And this was to prepare his disciples so that they would not be swept away in the judgment when it came upon that city. Because God had determined to destroy those people in that city, and therefore he gave to his disciples and to the Christians warnings and signs by which they could see the coming desolation so that they would be out of there. And he told them, when you see these things taking place, that they need to flee. They need to run and get out of Judea so that they are not swept up with the judgment. Then in verse 29 through the end of the chapter, well, really 29 to 31, he's dealing with the events of his second coming, right? When he returns again at his second coming, and then what are the implications of that? And how do we need to live now in light of the second coming of Christ? So that's how I take the chapter to divide. The first half dealing with the events that were immediate there to the disciples in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the second part dealing with the second coming of Christ and then the implications of that in terms of our righteousness and our obedience to Christ, okay? So we'll pick up tonight then in verse 29 where he is now dealing with the second coming, right? When he returns again, verse 29 says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Here he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Here he's talking about what he's just finished discussing, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. And many times this is where people have a big hang up. And they either want to put all of these events in the past, which is what the post-millennials do, or they want to put all these events in the future, which is what typically the uh, dispensationalists do. However, this term immediately does not necessitate that it happen a day after this, or even a week after this, or even a year after this. That it can be a very long period of time, but in terms of God's perspective it is immediately after this. It is the next great event that is going to happen. After the destruction of Jerusalem, the next great event is the second coming of Christ. So in terms of the sequence of events in the history of the world, this is immediately after those times. And we remember that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So what may seem to us to be a very long period of time for For the Lord, it is not long at all. And it truly can be said that this does happen immediately or sequentially. It is the next thing that happens after these events that he has just described. There is the time of the sojourning of the church where the gospel spreads into the world. And we're in those last days right now. But how long have the last days been going on? Well, we're at 2,000 years now. And we're still in the last days right so the last days are already a period that at least spans 2000 years and counting and yet it's still immediately after the tribulation of those days if we look at second peter 3 second peter 3 we'll see that the bible uses this type of terminology in order to make us aware right to make us aware and to keep us anticipating the second coming of christ because if it said, oh, thousands of years after this, then will be the second coming, then what would people do? They'd say, oh, okay, it doesn't matter. We can live however we want. We don't have to be waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. But really, every generation needs to live in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. That It's essential for us in our godliness and our faithfulness to the Lord to live in anticipation of those things. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the Lord is not slow in His promises, as some count slowness. We would count it slow. Oh, God is very slow in bringing these things about, the second coming of Christ. It's been thousands of years. But is it slow from the Lord's perspective? No, when a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, right? It is immediately in terms of the perspective of the Lord. Also, Psalm 90, Psalm 90 verse 4. Psalm 90 verse 4. Says, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years in the sight of God are as yesterday, like yesterday to us is a thousand years to the Lord. Right in the way that He is viewing these things. Then one other passage, Revelation twenty-two. Revelation twenty-two. Verses 7 and then verse 12 says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Then verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. Here Christ is saying this, and most scholars would take Revelation to be written around 90 A.D., About 90 AD. Well, in 90 AD, when John is receiving this revelation from the Lord, Jesus is saying, I am coming quickly. Well, quickly means at least 2,000 years, right? But is it still quickly that Christ is coming? Absolutely. In terms of eternity, it is but a breath, right? It is very quick in terms of what will be our experience for all eternity. So it is immediately that Christ will return, right? Uh, so immediately after the tribulation of those days, now he's going to tell what are the events that are going to surround the second coming of Christ. Well, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Here, the second coming will be accompanied with manifestations of, of the divine power of Christ, right? These events are cataclysmic events, unavoidable events, right? His first coming was very quiet. It was certainly announced there in Bethlehem with the angels coming to the shepherds, but it wasn't announced to the whole world like that. It wasn't accompanied with these great signs, invisible miracles and cataclysmic events in the sky and in the heavens. But at the second coming of Christ, there will be these visible manifestations of His second coming. The sun will be darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. So will this be something that we can miss? Is it possible for a person to miss the second coming of Christ? For it to happen in a way that is a secret that we don't know. Did he come back? Did he not come back? We're not sure. Well, how can you miss these events? Right? These things are obvious, they are blatant. Everyone will see and everyone will know when the when the uh, second coming takes place. Then verse 30 says, "And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory again here we have to be talking about the second coming of christ and this has to be visible visible and physical because they see it it cannot be merely spiritual and invisible as some take it there are some who take this to have been accomplished at ad 70 and it was a spiritual and invisible second coming of christ but this is not the way it reads here Right, He calls it the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. A sign, when a sign appears right in the sky, it's something visible. It's something that is obvious. Just like the star that appeared and led the wise men to Bethlehem, it was something that appeared and they followed it, they saw it. So the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And what is the sign of the Son of Man? Well, it is Him coming with the clouds with great glory, right? They will see Him, and when they see Him, it says, they will mourn over Him. When the tribes of the earth see Christ coming in the clouds with great power and glory, then they are going to mourn at His coming. Now, why are they mourning? Because of their sin. Because, of their sin. because the judgment of God is coming upon them, right? The messengers of God have gone to and fro in the world, And preach to them, proclaim to them the second coming of Christ. That there is a day of judgment, that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And most people mock and ridicule the messengers of God. They say, no, He's not coming back. What are you talking about? This is crazy. But now they are seeing it. But once He comes, it's too late. It's too late to repent. It's too late to determine your eternal destiny. It is already fixed and certain. Now you've lived in your sin, and now He's coming with His recompense. And He's going to reward each one according to what He has done. And this is why the tribes of the earth are going to mourn, because when they see Him coming, they know that He's coming to bring judgments upon them. They have ranted and raved against Christ. The nations are raging against Him. The peoples are plotting in vain. "...against the Lord and against His anointed one, and they don't want Christ to rule over them. But now they see that it is inevitable that what they have fought against is being fulfilled by the power of God, and they know what the consequences are of their rebellion, which is He's coming to judge them, right? To bring His judgments upon them and to punish them according to what they have done. This is the response of the wicked to the second coming of Christ." It is to mourn, to be in anguish over these things. Second Thessalonians 1. Second Thessalonians 1 verses six to eight. Second Thessalonians one verse six says, "For after all, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief uh, to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction." away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. There, it is when the Lord is revealed from heaven. And when He comes, He will come with His mighty angels in flaming fire. And for the wicked, He's coming to deal out retribution. They're going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. This is what will happen to them, and that's why they're mourning. Because they know that the day of their judgment has come and there's nothing that they can do to stop it. Also, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 4:16 says, "For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first." Here, the second coming of Christ uh, is the Lord descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God. Right? Again, this is going to be visible, obvious, unmistakable. There's no way that anyone can sleep through this, to not know that these things have happened, right? It will be obvious and plain to everyone. Then one last passage, Revelation chapter six. Revelation 6, 12, 12 to 16. Revelation six twelve says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of God. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand?" So here, when this takes place, the kings of the earth and even the slaves of the earth, all of them are saying to the mountains and rocks to hide them from the face of the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb. Because the day of their wrath has come and no one can stand against it. That is why they mourn at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what will happen to the ungodly on that day. But then, verse 31, it's not going to be this for everyone, right? For others, it's going to be for their benefit. And that is for the elect. Verse 31, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather the elect uh, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And here, the gathering of the elect is for what purpose? It is for their redemption, for them to receive their inheritance, for them to receive their reward. He gathers the wheat into his barn but the chaff He burns with unquenchable fire. And the angels are the ministers that He uses to go out and to gather His elect from the four ends of the earth and to bring them in and bring them into the kingdom of God and to give them their reward, right? Because the time of their sojourning is over and it is time for them to enter into their eternal rest and the angels will be the ones who will usher them into this. Luke chapter 21 28, Luke 21, 28, he says, but when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near, right? And these things are, this is the correlating chapter in the gospel of Luke. These, this is when you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, then you know the end has come and your redemption has arrived. Right? Your redemption, which is the redemption of our body. Right? The soul has been redeemed. We, ha- In a sense, we have been redeemed, but we have not received yet the full manifestation of our salvation, of our redemption. We have it in the form of a deposit. We have the Holy Spirit as a pledge of what God is going to do in us, but He has not brought it to completion. But when Christ comes, and we see Him as He is, then what will happen to us? We will be transformed, and we will be like Him. Then our redemption will be complete, because our bodies, our lowly bodies, will be transformed into His glorious body, like, just like the body of Christ, and our redemption, the redemption of man, sinful man, will be brought to its completion at that time. So, for the elect... Is the coming of Christ something for them to mourn about? No, they're rejoicing, right? It's a day of great rejoicing, right? This is what they've been longing for, looking for all of their life, right? To be with the Lord. This is why the apostle Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he greatly desires to be absent and to put away this present body and to go and be with the Lord. So this is what awaits for the children of God, for the elect, their redemption, their salvation But for the reprobate, for the wicked, it will be their punishment, okay, their punishment. So for the one, it's for their good. For the other, it is for their judgment. Then verse 32. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches have already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So you too, when you see all of these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here, he uses the example of the fig tree, the parable of the fig tree or an illustration from the fig tree. When you look at the fig tree and you see that its branches are becoming tender, that it begins to put forth its leaves, right? During the winter... The trees become dormant. They shed their leaves. They have the appearance of being dead. But then when the spring and the summer is coming, the signs of life begin to appear in the tree again, right? They become tender. They put forth their leaves. And you know that winter is almost over and the summer is drawing near. It is a sign that indicates the coming of a new season. And so it is also with the coming of the Son of Man right? There is a new season, right? Currently, this present life is like the wintertime for us, but the summer, when things are alive and there's vitality and thriving, that is just around the corner, right? It is there on the horizon, and when we see these things begin to take place, then we know that He is right there at the door, right? That He is going to come very quickly. Recognize, He says, He is near. He is right at the door, right? He's not far off, but he's right there and he's fixing to open up the door and then we're going to enter into our eternal, blessed dwelling place. So when we see all of these things, and these things are the intensity, the intensifying of the sufferings of the church, the judgments of God that are being poured out upon the world, when we see these things happening, these are reminders to us that The Son of Man, our Lord Jesus Christ, is coming quickly and for us to lift up our heads because our redemption is drawing near. To not be despondent, to not be discouraged, to not think that God will fail us and not fulfill His promises, no. He says we shouldn't be like this, but rather when you see these things happening, it is an evidence that He is right there and He will be here soon. So lift up your head and know that your redemption has almost come to its conclusion. 1 Thessalonians five. First Thessalonians five verses one to eleven. And we have reference First and Second Thessalonians frequently during our study of Matthew twenty-four because they deal a lot with the second coming of Christ, the coming of the Lord. Because that was one of the false teachings that was being promoted is that the resurrection had already taken place and Jesus had already returned, right? And so he's trying to tell them that this hasn't taken place and give them comfort. First Thessalonians 5 verse 1, Now as to the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon Them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So, there, this is the same as what Jesus is saying. You know, summer is coming when you see the fig tree begin to put forth its leaves. So, He's saying also, you know that these things are coming and you're not going to be surprised, right? No one who's looking objectively at the fig tree is surprised that summer is coming. He knows that he needs to start making preparations for those things. You put your winter clothes up, you get the summer clothes out, right? You do those things that are necessary to prepare for the change of the season. And so here as well, we have no need for anyone to say to us about the times and epochs because we know what is happening. We know the time in which we live. We're living in the last days. And we know that this present world and this present age will be brought to its conclusion at the second coming of Christ and that he's coming quickly. So we're not going to be surprised if Jesus comes back tomorrow or the next day or 10 years from now. Why would we be shocked that that would happen when the Bible is telling us over and over again that he is coming quickly? So it will not take us... By surprise, it will take the world by surprise. But God has not destined us for wrath, He says. Who is He destined for wrath? The the unbelievers, the reprobate. God has destined them for wrath, those who are going to mourn at the coming of Christ. But for us, He has destined the obtaining of our salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us in order to save us from our sins. And when He returns... He will give to us that salvation, right, in its full and final form. So we need to know that these things are near, that they are right around the door. Then, verse 34 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Here, he's giving to them the certainty of these things, right? You need to know for sure that these things will all be accomplished before this generation passes away. Now here, this is another part where people uh, get troubled because generation many times, and it can mean a group of people in a span of 20, 30, 40 years, such as the wilderness generation. The wilderness generation was a group of people, a body of people that lived during a certain period of time. And when Jesus says this generation will not pass away, if you take this generation to mean the generation of the disciples, then you have to conclude that all of the events that are described in chapter 24, all of them must take place in their lifetime before they pass away. And that's why some people will take the second coming of Christ to have already occurred before the end of that generation before the end of the generation of the disciples. However, I think the better interpretation is that this term for generation, it can be used of a group of people uh, for a period of time of 20 to 30 years, but it also can be used more broadly to refer to a group of people in an age of the earth, right? like the last days. We are living in the last days. That is the period of time. And the generation of the last days is the generation in which we live. That spans from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. And that generation, the generation of the last days, that generation will not pass away until all of these things are accomplished. And I think that's the better way to take it. Just as last days don't have to mean just a single day or a a couple of days, three or four days, or an age, you know, can meet a very long period of time, or immediately or quickly can refer to thousands of years. So generation can also be used in this way. To talk about a group of people or a body of people over a long period of time, more than just 20 or 30 years, but spanning from the first coming of Christ until the second coming of Christ. And in that sense, the disciples lived during this generation, but who else lives in this generation? We do. And as long as the world continues as it is, every generation will live in this generation. And this generation will be brought to its end at the second coming of Christ. Meaning, this present age will not pass away until everything that Christ has predicted will be accomplished. And then it will come to its conclusion at the second coming of Christ. That is when it will pass away. Uh, Couple of examples where this term generation is, I think, used more broadly. First, Deuteronomy thirty-two, Deuteronomy thirty-two, verse five. Deuteronomy thirty-two, five says. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Here he's saying that these people, the children of Israel, they are a perverse and crooked generation. Now we might say, well, yes, but Moses is applying that to his own generation, right? This is what they are. But notice in Acts chapter 2, the apostle says the same thing is true about his generation, right? Because he's using it to describe wicked people, right? They are a crooked and a perverse generation, or a crooked and perverse people. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying... Be saved from this perverse generation, and if you have a footnote there, or yours may be in quotations there, and then if you have footnotes, you'll notice that it references Deuteronomy thirty-two five. So that generation that Moses is talking about, that is crooked and perverse, that generation has continued and is still on the earth during the days of the apostle, because it is descriptive of the wicked. They are a perverse in a crooked generation. And then also Philippians chapter two. Philippians two fourteen and fifteen. Thirty 14 and fifteen, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So there, again, a crooked and perverse generation. So I think the best way is that this is describing uh, the present age, right? The, pres- the group of people alive from the first and second coming of, of Christ is this generation. And that this generation will not pass away until all of these things have been accomplished by Christ. Because if it is, again, referring to that specific generation of the disciples, then everything listed here has to be accomplished during their lifetime. But has did Christ appear in this way during their lifetime? Of no, of course not. And that's why they say, well, then it's spiritual. It's invisible and spiritual. But well, that doesn't make sense either. So I think the best way is to take generation to be referring to the body of people in between the first and second coming of Christ. Then verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here, he's giving to them the certainty, the surety of what it is that he is saying, right? Don't think that the second coming and the judgment that follows, don't think that these things will not come to pass. They are going to happen. Right, And you need to be sure and certain that they're going to happen. And we know that they're going to happen because who has said that they're going to happen? Christ. Christ has. His Word has confirmed the reality of these events. He has predicted them. This is what is going to happen. And how sure and certain is the Word of Christ? Well, here, heaven and earth will pass away before His Word passes away. His Word is more certain, more sure, more stable than the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth are more sure and stable than us. Because we will live and we will die, but the heavens and earth will remain and they will continue into the next generation and into the next and into the next and into the next. But the word of Christ is even more sure and stable than the heavens and earth. They will pass away, but not his word. His word will never pass away. So, should we believe in the second coming of Christ? Should we have confidence that this is going to happen and that? He is going to judge the world, and He is going to reward His people whenever He returns. Yes, we need to have confidence in this so that we live according to its truth. These are the promises of God. The promises of God that are given to us in Scripture, they call for us to believe in them and then to live in obedience to these promises. They have obedience that is accompanying the promise. And what is the obedience that we need that accompanies the promise of the second coming of Christ? Endurance, right? perseverance, faithfulness, right? to lift up your head, to not be despondent, but to know for certain that Christ will return. And when He does, He will judge the wicked and He will reward His people. He will deliver them from all of their affliction. So should we give up? Should we forsake Him? Should we turn back? Should we put our hands to the plow and say, it's too hard? I'm going to turn back and just go and live with the world. Because, you know, maybe he's not going to come back. Maybe he's not going to judge the world. No. He's saying, don't believe that. And false teachers are going to try to convince us he's not coming back. We don't have anything to worry about, is what they're going to say. But we cannot listen to these things. 2 Thessalonians 2. Second. Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So here, he's talking about the second coming of Christ and are being gathered together to him. And he tells them, do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed about these things. There are people out there, a spirit, a message, a letter... Some of them are even writing their letters in the name of the Apostle Paul, saying that they represent him, and this is what the Apostle Paul believes, and I am the Apostle Paul, and this is what I'm telling you. And they're telling them, the day of the Lord has already come. And he's saying, don't believe this, right? You know that this hasn't happened, and it will not happen until these other events happen first, right? He will come, but he hasn't come yet. So do not lose your composure and be shaken in your confidence, in your belief in the second coming of Christ. Also, 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, verses 1 to 4. 2 Peter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continued just as it was from the beginning of creation. So there... He's telling them, right, don't forget the doctrines, the words that were given to you by your apostles, right, the commandment of the Lord and His apostles. They taught you about the second coming of Christ. Isn't that what Jesus is doing here? Isn't this the command from the Lord? The very words of Christ record this, and then His apostles reaffirm these things, reiterate them over and over and over again. But people are going to come in the last days, and when do we live? We live in the last days. And these mockers will arise with their mocking, following their own lust. Right? What is driving them to deny the second coming of Christ? It is their own lust. Their desire to sin. Right? In this case, and this is typically the case, a person's morality, or in this case immorality, is determining their doctrine. Their desire for sin determines what they believe. So they're not honest, they're not sincere, they're not objective, they don't care about the truth. They have a desire to sin, and then they will create doctrines, they'll create a body of doctrine to accommodate their sin. And what doctrine is more terrifying to the sins of man than the second coming of Christ? And so they want to get rid of it, and they say it's not going to happen. Everything has continued as it was since the very beginning of creation. Where is his coming? Where is it at? So they're attacking here specifically the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment. And he's telling them, don't believe them. Don't believe these kinds of people. And how sure and certain is the second coming of Christ? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And this word is just given concerning the second coming of Christ. Every word of God proves true. It says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Then verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Here, the event is certain. It is fixed. The second coming of Christ. The timing of it, though, is unknown. Right? And that's what Jesus says here. The exact day, the exact hour, no one knows. No one knows the exact day. No one can say on March 24th, 2045 at 12.15 p.m., Jesus Christ is going to return. That is when it's going to happen. No one can say that because no one knows the exact day and no one knows the exact hour or the exact minute in which Christ will return. Now, will it happen on a day? It will happen on a day. And will it happen at a certain time in that day. There will be a time in that day when everything is normal, just like every other day that has preceded it. And then all of a sudden, right, in a moment, Christ will appear from heaven. And it will happen like that. And He says, no one knows the day or the hour. So if anyone says that they know, then we know for certain. If they say they know, we know and what do we know about them? They're liars. We know they're not telling the truth, right? That should be the first sign that this person is a liar. Why would I listen to them if they're telling me they know the day or the hour, right? But people, they'll do this. They do one of two things. They either deny the second coming of Christ or they claim to know the exact day and hour of His coming. In either way, the result is always the same. You can live it up. You can live in your sin because either He's not returning or we know the exact day He's coming so up until that point we can do what? Have a good time, right? We can live in our sin and then we'll repent at the last moment and then we're going to make it to heaven anyway. This is what people want to do. And that's why they'll either deny the second coming or they'll say, we know that it's gonna gonna be this day. It's way in the future. So we don't have to worry about it. We can live however we please. Isn't that what the slave does in the parable given here at the end? He he doesn't know what time his master is coming. Had he known what time his master is coming, he wouldn't have been drinking. He wouldn't have been beating his fellow slaves. He wouldn't have been sleeping and having a good time. But, But he thinks my master is delayed. Right, I have time to goof off. I can live like this without his notice, and then before he comes, I'll go out and work, and then when he comes, he'll think, oh, look at this faithful slave. He's been working hard the whole time. Right? He was working when I left, he's working when I got back, but in between, he was off goofing off, having a good time. Now, what is wrong with this line of thinking? (laughs) It puts them in control instead of God. But Christ knows what we're doing all the time, right? It's not like we can escape His gaze at any time of the day, right? He always knows what we are doing. But this is the way people are. But according to God, according to God's perfect wisdom, His perfect design and plan, the event is given to us with certainty. So certain that heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will not pass away. But then the precise timing of it is unknown. So what is the conclusion that we should draw? What is the implication or the application from the way that this doctrine comes to us? It's to always be ready. That's the way the faithful, wise slave lives. He says, I know my master is coming, but I don't know the exact time of his coming, so I want to be ready. I want to be faithful so that it doesn't matter. If he comes at one o'clock, he'll find me doing his will. If he comes at three o'clock, he'll find me doing his will. If he comes at five o'clock, he'll find me doing his will. If we're doing the will of the master, it doesn't matter what day he comes because he will find us doing his will. And this is why Jesus teaches us the certainty of his second coming, but not the precise timing. He does it for our benefit, for our good, so that we're always prepared and we're always living, anticipating the second coming of Christ. But this element of uncertainty is there, not knowing the exact time, to keep us always anticipating and to keep us always being faithful so that when He does come, we will be ready. Now here in verse 36, He says, no one knows. No man knows, right? So there's no man on earth that knows the second coming of Christ. Jesus did not reveal this to any of His prophets and to any of His apostles. Now, if He didn't reveal it to them, then why would He reveal it to someone today? He won't. Also, His angels. Not even the angels know the exact day and hour of the second coming of Christ. And His angels are His messengers, His servants. He makes His angels, His messengers, flames of fire. They are the ones sent out to render service to us. Well, in their rendering of service to us, is one of the services, ministries, that the angels perform for us is to give us secret insight into the day and the hour of the second coming of Christ. No, because God hasn't revealed it to them, they don't know. So if an angel appears and tells us that he knows the second coming of Christ... Well, we know he's not an angel. He's a demon, right? And we shouldn't listen to him. It would be the same kind of angel that appeared to Muhammad out there in the wilderness, right? When he received the Quran. So, no angel knows, and not even the Son. Here, Jesus says, not even the Son, but only the Father knows. Now, certainly, when he says this, he means this in terms of his human nature. Right, this would be the same as uh, when Jesus died on the cross. Did God die? Well, of course not, because it's impossible for God to die. When we say that He died on the cross, we mean that His human body died on the cross. Or when we say that He, when it says in the scriptures that He became tired, or He was thirsty, or He was hungry, does this mean that God gets hungry, that God gets thirsty, that God gets tired and needs to take a nap? No, it means that in terms of the humanity of Christ. Well, even during His incarnation, God the Father did not reveal to the Son, to Christ, this information about the second coming. And this is intentional because if He didn't even reveal that to Christ, to God incarnate, to the Son of God in human flesh, then why is He going to reveal it to any one of us? Why is He going to reveal it to any other man? So not even the Son knows, but only the Father so again, if anyone tells us they know the second coming of Christ, we know that they are big, fat liars, okay? And we should not listen to anything that they say. So don't fall prey to this. Now, is not it seem like every 10 years or so, someone will write a book telling us about the second coming of Christ? Remember the 88 Reasons? He'll return on 8-8 of 88. You know, then it's 99 reasons of 9-9 of 99. You know, they do this all the time, right? I'm sure Y2K, he was going to come back. Uh, you know, I wish he'd come back now with Biden, get him out of there. But anyway, no one knows the exact day. So we just have to be faithful and press on. And if anyone says that they do, then don't listen to them. And this would be like in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: The secret things belong to the Lord. Right. This is a secret thing, and it belongs to who? It belongs to the Lord only. And then what belongs to us and to our children? Those things that are revealed, that are here in the Word of God. And there's plenty in the Word of God to occupy our time without giving ourselves to vain curiosity. And that is what this is. Vain curiosity and speculations that lead to the ruin of the hearers. So we should not dabble in those things, speculate about those things, nor listen to those who give themselves to these kinds of uh, speculations. Verse 37 says, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took all of them away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Here, there is a correlation between the days of Noah and the days of the second coming. Now, this correlation is not only in the surprise, the shock that happened in the way that it caught the unbelievers off guard, but also in terms of what happened during those times. Because the days of Noah are a symbol or type of the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment, right? The only other time in the history of the world where God performed a worldwide global judgment on the earth was in the days of Noah. Now certainly God has brought judgments upon the earth throughout human history, but most of the time they're localized, right? It's to this city or this nation or this group of people, but it's not worldwide and it's not global in this way. But during the time of the flood, that is what he did. He destroyed the world as a flood with a flood, as a sign and symbol of the destruction of the world at the second coming of Christ, at the end of the, of the age the difference being, then He did it by water, and then at the second coming, He'll do it by fire. Right? He'll destroy this present world by fire. So both of them are worldwide and cataclysmic in what they accomplish on the earth. Second Peter 3, verses 3 to 7 show this. So there is this correlation between the judgment that took place during the days of Noah, and then the judgment that will take place during the time of Christ, being that it is universal and it is worldwide. Second <laughs> Peter 3, verse 3, "'Knowing this, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, "'Where is the promise of His coming? "'For ever since the fathers fell asleep, "'all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. "'For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice.'" "...that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men." So there, when the mockers are saying, where is His second coming, and everything has continued from the beginning of creation... Well, it hasn't continued from the beginning of creation because what are they leaving out? What is that global event that took place after creation in between their own day? And that is the flood, this worldwide flood when he destroyed the world of the ungodly. And just as he did then, he will do again in the future at his second coming and he'll do it with fire. This is what Christ will do. So there is that correlation between the days of Noah. Also, there is a correlation in the way that people were living during the days of Noah. They're not anticipating it, right? It catches them completely by surprise. Now, during the days of Noah, who did it not catch by surprise? Noah, right? Noah was not caught off guard, right? That's what we read earlier, Right? He says, you don't have any reason for me to teach you these things. Right? It's not going to catch you off guard because we're children of light. We're not of the darkness. We're not sleeping. We're not getting drunk. Right? We're sober-minded. We know what's coming. Noah knew what was coming. And in fear, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, in fear or in reverence, he prepared the ark. He believed in the coming judgment that God had pr- announced to him by way of promise. This is what I'm going to do. And because he believed in that future event, it led him at that time before the event took place to prepare the ark in reverence or in fear of God, fear of the judgment that was coming. But the rest of the world, they didn't care, right? They weren't afraid. They were just living and having a good time. And we know as well that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, Noah was preaching the gospel to them. He was preaching to them of the coming judgment of God, but they didn't listen to him, right? They didn't listen, but what were they doing during those days, before the flood? Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. These are the typical things that happen day in and day out. They were doing the things associated with this life like this world was just going to continue on Day after day after day after day without any interruption. Eating, drinking, giving and marrying, giving in marriage. Just like things were going to continue as they always had. And certainly that day started just like any other day. The sun rose just like every other day. The birds come out just like every other day. And people go about their business just as they did the day before and the day before and the day before. And many days before that. And then what happened? Then Noah entered into the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. He entered the ark, and they didn't understand what was taking place. Now, why did they not understand? Is it because they weren't taught? Well, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. They didn't understand because they didn't believe it. They did not believe the Word of God that was taught to them, that was proclaimed to them by the prophet Noah. They did not understand by faith, meaning they did not believe. They refused to believe what was being announced and proclaimed to them. Well, isn't that the same today? Men do not understand about the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment. Not because people aren't talking about it, we're talking about it, but because they don't care. They're not interested in those things. They don't believe it. They do not have faith in those things. They don't understand it by faith they don't believe it and they don't receive it and live according to these future realities and then the flood came and took them all away they all perished well the same thing is going to happen with the coming of the son of man they're going to be going about their day just like every other day marrying giving in marriage eating and drinking going about their business and then the son of man will appear in heaven and then they're all going to be taken away to judgment. They're going to be swept away in that judgment. Then verse 40 and 41. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Here, um, you know, there are different ways of taking this. Some take it that one person is taken away to judgment and the other one is left. Some take it that one person is taken away to eternal glory and the other is left. Either way you slice it, there is a separation that takes place between the two. Now, both of them are going about the events associated with this life because as long as this world continues, there is a sense in which we do need to eat and drink and we do need to marry and give in marriage because we don't know the exact day. right? If we knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, then of course we wouldn't get up and go to work tomorrow. We would wait for the coming of the Lord. But we don't know that He's coming tomorrow, so what do we do? We go about our life and we do those things that are necessary for this life. So He's not saying that in the days of Noah, it was evil for them to eat and drink and marry and give in marriage, right? He's saying it in the sense of that's all that they're thinking about. They're not thinking about the day of judgment. They're not preparing themselves for the life to come. But in this case, The two men in the field, one is prepared for the second coming of Christ and the other one is not. The two women grinding at the mill, one is prepared and the other one is not. And while the one who is prepared is waiting and hastening the coming of the Lord, she's grinding at the mill because she needs meal, right? She needs to provide for her household. She needs to feed her children. And so she's doing those things that are necessary. The one who is prepared, the man is out in the field because he needs to work According to the Word of God, he needs to provide an income and livelihood for his family, so he's out there working. But he's ready. He's anticipating it. He's living according to the Word of God. He's been reconciled to God through the death of Christ, and he's waiting and he's living a godly and a righteous life. And then one of them is taken to judgment, and the other one is taken to eternal glory. And here, there are even some manner of relationship, right? Because the two men are out in the field together. And the two women are grinding at the mill together, right? So there is some manner of relationship there, and we know that this will happen as well, that there will be a separation, right? In some homes where the husband is a believer and the wife is an unbeliever, the one will be taken to judgment and the other to eternal glory because the one is ready and the other one is not, right? And this is why we have to be ready. We have to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when He comes, we are not caught off guard like those people during the days of Noah. Do we want to be the people that were swept away or do we want to be Noah? Well, we want to be like Noah. Noah was ready because in fear, He prepared the ark. We need to be ready and that's why we need to live out the time of our life in fear and trembling. Right? Fear and trembling, work out your own salvation, He says, with fear and trembling this is the way that we need to live, right? Live a godly life, trust in Christ, do the will of God so that whether Christ comes today or tomorrow or if it's 10 years from now or if it's 50 years from now and we're still alive, we're ready for the coming of Christ, okay? So that's the way. And then that's what he will talk about beginning then in verse 42 and then going into chapter 25 as well. So let us then live in that way.